Last week, for those of you who are here, we began looking at the life of Elijah, and in particular his journey with uh, silence and solitude. We've been looking at uh, silence and solitude, these rhythms of grace over the last few weeks. And in his story, uh, we come across some things, we started this last week, we're going to carry on today, some things that I think may well help us um, as we think about what our times of silence and solitude can be like as we've looked at this uh, rhythm of grace over the last few weeks. One of the things I love about Elijah's story is that it's so real. Uh, It gives us this very human perspective on what it's like as we enter this rhythm of silence and solitude. So just to recap, uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we're in 1 Kings chapter 19. And first of all, we see uh, how Elijah rests. He's exhausted from his ministry. He's pretty burnt out. Uh, If you remember the story, he's running literally for his life from... Jezebel, she's the queen, she's married to Ahab, she is like one crazy lady, she's after him, uh, and he's fleeing for his life, and, and he, he just, he's so exhausted, he's so burnt out, he just needs to rest, he just needs to take some time to eat, he needs to take some time uh, to drink, he just needs to take some time to be physically revived, refreshed, and restored. We looked at this last week, you know, because we know that we can't separate uh, the physical and the emotional and the spiritual elements of our being. It's all mixed up into this chocolate milkshake. And so the reality is, is very often before we can go much further in terms of pressing in and stepping into all the things that the Lord God has for us, sometimes we just need to slow down and pay attention and be attentive to our physical needs. And as we do that, we can actually begin to engage much more uh, with what God has for us. And so, first and foremost, Elijah rests. And then he waits. And if you recall, he, he, he... Waits, but as he waits, he carries on walking. He he goes on this 40-day journey to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the place of encounter with God, and here he is. He's walking across the desert. He's waiting and walking. He just carries on walking. In all of the waiting, he literally just keeps on just putting one foot in front of the other. But through this whole time, there's 40 days of waiting and walking. There are no big revelations. There are no prophetic words of encouragement. There's no uh, big vision. Nothing at all. Literally just day after day, desert. Nothing to see, nothing to do, nothing to hear. Just walking faithfully one foot in front of the other. And so kind of having rested and and, and replenished himself and then gone on this long uh, journey, he's walking uh, and I imagine during his walk, he's kind of starting to, he's, he's beginning to process all of the stuff that's been going on. He's probably, uh, if he's anything like me, grumbling all the way through this 40-day journey. Uh, eventually, he makes it to the mountain. And when he gets to Mount Horeb, uh, the Lord is there. The Lord asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And there's something in this question from God that literally is like a key. It opens and unlocks all of Elijah's emotions and feelings. And so all of his doubts and his fears and his confusion and his pain, it all comes blah, 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 tumbling out. He gets in touch with how he's been feeling. As I say, he's probably spent 40 days just like griping and moaning, you know, looking behind him, waiting to see if Jezebel is catching up with him. 
But not only does he kind of have this sort of torrent of emotion, he does what I think is a really, really brave thing because he actually names all of the things that he's feeling. He doesn't just feel it. You know, it's one thing to feel a whole load of emotions, but it's a whole other ballgame to actually name this stuff, to call it out and to, to speak it out loud. That's a properly brave thing to do. And that's uh, what Elijah does. I think he's incredibly brave. So that's kind of a bit of a recap from where we were last week. So uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll pick up from where we were last week. Uh, something like let's find the right chapter Uh, where should we pick up oh verse 9 there so he's on Mount Horeb there he went into a cave and spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him what are you doing here Elijah he replied I've been uh, very zealous for the Lord God Almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from hard word, hard word, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed So, there's the story. Here's Elijah. He's on Mount Horeb. Um, This is the place where so many before him have encountered God. And and God asks Elijah for the first time. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And as we saw last week, Elijah responds quickly. And his response, it's pretty emotional. Uh, You know, despite his 40-day journey, he's still, maybe because of his 40-day journey, he's still in a, a pretty dark place he's still wrestling with all of these um, unanswered questions he's still struggling to, to 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 understand what the flipping heck has happened you know what's gone wrong and I think this illustrates part of the point of getting away um, for some time with God getting away in silence and solitude one of the main reasons I think that we need to interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of the almighty as eugene peterson puts it the the one of the key reasons we need to get away on our own in the quiet with god is so that we can gain his perspective we can gain god's perspective we can get god's point of view on what is and has been happening to us and this is exactly what elijah does and 
in the midst of it all, he starts to feel all of these emotions. And he, he begins to speak it all out in the presence of God. And it's this coming to this, coming to this place where we're being honest with ourselves. Where we're being honest with God about what's really kind of going on with us. It's so incredibly important. It can get really, really messy. Uh, if you've ever been in that place, it's really, really uncomfortable. But this is the start of us receiving from God all that he has for us. This is the place where we begin to get his perspective on all that's been going on. Uh, in verse 11, God tells Elijah what to do next. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. You know, and you're Elijah, I imagine you're kind of like, you've, you've, you've had this horrendous experience. You've, you've tried to be as faithful as you possibly can to what God's told you to do. Uh, now, like, you know, everyone's after you. They're trying to kill you. They're kind of killing everybody else. And, and, and you've done this 40-day journey. Uh, you've had your kind of emotional thing. And it's like God is finally about to speak. So if you're Elijah, you're like, at last, flipping heck, thank you. You're actually going to say something. You know, all of this trauma, all of this uncertainty, all of this waiting and this walking and this slapping and trudging through desert with nothing from God. And now you're going to show up. Now God is going to speak. You know, because there's no secret that um, Elijah's desperate to hear from God. Uh, from his exhaustion, his isolation, his fear, his, he, he's... He's a good lad. He's longing and yearning to hear from God so that he might better understand what actually has been going on. Everyone's dying. I'm about to get killed. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. It wasn't supposed to pan out this way. What's going on, God? And we get like that. You know, things haven't turned out the way that we'd hoped. Life has taken a serious turn for the worst. For the worst. And we're... All we're trying to do as best as we possibly can is, is serve God well. But we just kind of can't work out which direction we're supposed to take. It's like, tell me and I'll do it. But like, ah. We get frustrated. We, we get really anxious. We become confused and uncertain. And all of these doubts start to creep in. And it's like we're right back at the Garden of Eden. Did God really say so we start questioning and doubting all of the things that we thought we knew were true. And when we're, we're this desperate, you know, when things have gone so horribly wrong, when we're so confused about what's going on, what we're usually secretly hoping for is that God is going to do something amazing. It's going to do something like proper, something huge, something incontrovertible, something so absolutely God that neither we nor anyone else could possibly doubt that God himself has shown up and intervened into my situation. Because when we're desperate and we're tired and we're isolated and we're lonely and we're overwhelmed with all of the challenges that we're facing, the reality is that we feel very, very small. We feel very powerless. And so we need God to be very, very big. We need God in that moment to be very powerful. We need to encounter God's presence in all of its glory and its power and splendor and majesty and might. 
And so in verses 11 and 12, we've, we've got the big moment. It's like the big reveal. It's like, it's coming. Hurrah! You know, we've got Elijah and he's standing out on the mountain and he's, he's ready to encounter God. He's ready to receive all that God has from him. God, he knows that the presence of God is about to pass by. So he's, he's out on the mountain. He's like standing there. He's like assumed the position, you know, like arms out, eyes closed. I'm here, God. I'm ready for all that you've got for me. Bring it on. This is going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to this. And then all of a sudden, there he is. And then there's like this wind. This wind comes. It's like, oh, great. This is a good start. Wind, I can feel it. I can hear it blowing. It's coming. It's coming. This is great. This is going to be awesome. You know, and, and, and the wind comes. This isn't like any ordinary wind. Uh, there's probably a moment where he's like, uh, uh, um, oh, dear. Uh, this isn't quite what I had in mind. Um, you know, this isn't like, or in order, this is like um, a nuclear wind. This is wind that comes and literally tears apart the mountain. This shatters the rocks. This is like serious wind. Yeah. But God's not in the wind. So Elijah's like, okay, don't know what to do now. I'll just wait a bit longer. Uh, and, And sensibly, you know, then comes round two. An earthquake. He's like, oh, okay, the ground's starting to shake. This is good, awesome. Like, yeah, okay, mountain moving, earthquake. This is more likely. Now we're talking, you know, surely the God of heaven and earth is here in this moment, ready God's not in the earthquake. And just as an aside, this is completely for free. Um, you've, you've got to pay for the rest. Uh, you've got to hand it to Elijah. I mean, he's a bit of a hero. Um, here he is. He's running for his life. He's desperate to meet with God. He walks for 40 days across the flipping desert. Uh, he's had some kind of emotional breakdown. He hears from God that God's presence is about to pass by. And so he endures the wildness of the wind no sign of God and then he's stuck in the middle of an earthquake and still no sign of God you know he's stuck on this mountainside you know or or what's left of it waiting to encounter the presence of the living God here he is waiting like through a wind like no other standing still and solid through an earthquake like that's probably off the Richter scale and then in verse 12 fire like fire. I mean, he's not having a very good day. Um, you know, finally, the fire, whatever that's like, I would imagine pretty intense and immense. Finally, the fire dies down, and Elijah's just like standing there, windswept, shaken, probably a little singed, and nothing. Nothing. Still, still no sign of God actually showing up even though he said his presence is about to pass by we haven't noticed how we tend to sometimes over spiritualize getting um, direction you know many of us look for um, some wild or extraordinary moment of god you know that's what we're after you know we're after the wind experience we're after the earthquake moment we're after the fire encounter and when we don't get it especially if we don't get it right away, we, we, we panic. It's like, oh, uh, uh, what's happened? You know, and oftentimes we bail. Like, I bail very, very quickly. You know, it's like I tried it. God didn't show up. You know, there's no thunder, no lightning, nothing. I've been here for like nearly half an hour. And God just hasn't shown up. Where are you, God? 
Some of us can't even wait long enough for worship to end before we give up on the presence of God. And so we conclude that God hasn't shown up. God isn't faithful. God doesn't love me. He, he doesn't want to speak to me. He's not going to give me direction. But if only we had waited just that little bit longer. If only we'd stood still just a little bit longer. If we just listened just that little bit closer. Because what comes next is priceless. Almost imperceptibly on the breeze comes this whisper. This still, small voice. And God comes. And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and Whatever it was that the Lord said to Elijah, it changes everything. Have a look at verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And this is like a, this is like a picture of Elijah submitted to the Lord. You know, this covering of his face with his cloak is like an outward demonstration of what's going on inside his heart, this inward humility, what's happening inside him. And he goes out to the mouth of the cave. This is like, um, you know, in Job, where Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. It's like, oh, what am I thinking? I put my hand over my mouth. Elijah knows that he is in the presence of the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And this actually in the story, you know, which is very familiar to so many of us, I know, it may feel like or seem like a really insignificant detail. It may seem like a small incidental part of the story. But this surrender, this submission, this place of humility that Elijah comes to, this covering of his face with his cloak, This is the place of redemption. This is the place of transformation. This is the place where everything changes. In uh, Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah writes this. He says this in verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, 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 we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The God of of heaven and earth has invited all of us into this place of salvation and rest. The trouble is... We've chosen to flee. 
We've chosen to run. We've chosen to save ourselves. We've chosen to find the fastest horses we can possibly get our hands onto so that we can run for our lives. But um, for those of us who've been running most of our lives, we've discovered that actually our pursuers are swift. We've discovered that we can get on a supersonically fast horse and run in the opposite direction, but we take our demons and all of our stuff and our brokenness and our hurt with us. And what happens is we run and we keep on running literally till we are left um, naked and exposed, isolated and alone, like literally like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. far away from our homes, far away from our true identity, um, just so far away from all of the abundance of life that Jesus Christ died in order that we might have. You see, the invitation of God is to repentance and rest. Through the blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, this is the place where we find our salvation. The invitation of God to each one of us is to quietness and trust. It's the same quietness and trust that Jesus Christ himself chose as he struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, desperately asking the Father to take this cup from him. But in actual fact, he chose to submit. He chose quietness and trust to surrender his life into the hands of the Father whom he loved and trusted so that he could actually give his life as a ransom for many. That's the place where we find our strength. This place of repentance and rest, this place of quietness and trust, this is the place Elijah now finds himself. And this place of redemption and transformation, this is where we just see the shift starting to take place in this story of Elijah's encounter. And we go back to verse 13 and 14, and God asks him again, you know, what's he doing there? It's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? And we're like, like would you, you just asked him that. Like, like you just asked him. But uh, if you know God at all, this is kind of, sort of, the kind of thing that God does to us. And it looks a bit confusing on the surface, but when you dig deep, it kind of makes lots of sense. It's, it's like he's allowing Elijah to consider everything again. He's like reframing everything for him. It's like allowing Elijah to work through how he's feeling, to work through what he's thinking in light of everything that's just happened. And God's not asking a second time because, you know, he's a bit confused because, like, he forgot what Elijah said a few minutes or however long ago. He's not asking again because he wasn't listening the first time. It's like, I'm too busy doing something else. What was it you said? He's asking um, more for Elijah's sake than for his own. And, and, and honestly, I would have expected, I would have hoped that Elijah would have said something different here. Um, but as we see, it's like exactly the same response as before. Now, the tone may have changed, but it's basically the same thing. And actually, this is really, really encouraging for me. Because it's like even after he's heard from God, even after he's encountered the presence of the living God, the way that he just has, he's still not quite ready to move on to the next thing. He hasn't kind of quite caught up. 
He's not quite ready to have his perspective changed or his viewpoint shifted. And what I love about that is the fact that it gives us permission for all of this stuff that we're experiencing and feeling not to go away in a moment. It doesn't just shift in a second. Like, sometimes it takes time. It can take time. It does take time. And you know what? That's okay. That's all right. It's okay that it's taking us time to process the struggles and the trauma and the pain and the disappointment and the doubt and the frustration that we're experiencing. It's okay. It takes time. But Elijah, as he stands in God's presence, slowly but surely, things begin to melt away. Things, things lift. And you know, if you've ever experienced that, most of the time we don't even know when it happened or how it happened. It just kind of happened. God did something, and I can't even quite put my finger on when or where, but uh, just by being with God, resting in his arms, even though our circumstances and our situations and our challenges and the difficulties may not have materially changed, something in us has changed. Something in us has been transformed by being in the presence of the living God, and we're different. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes this. He says this in verse 15. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate, reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord of his Spirit. When we turn um, to the Lord, when we turn towards the Lord, when we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and we attend to the presence of the Almighty in silence and solitude, when we come to this place of repentance and rest, when we enter into some kind of space of quietness, and trust as we just get into God's presence in worship and adoration and submission and surrender. The veil that separates us, the thing that comes between us, the things that keeps us apart from God, that veil is, is taken away. And the freedom that is truly ours comes upon us. And as we contemplate the Lord's glory, what happens? We are transformed into his image. That's why we make time to do this, what we're doing this morning. We are interrupting our preoccupation with ourselves to attend to the presence of the Almighty through worship, through reorganizing your schedule so that you can be here and listen to the word of God, the scriptures being taught, so that we can make time to just allow the Spirit of God to minister. So that's why we're making time to have an evening of worship. We just want to spend at least two hours just in the presence of the Almighty God, worshipping Him, so that we can come to this place of surrender and submission, so that we can encounter God's presence and look and gaze upon His glory, that the veil would be removed and separated and lifted. The thing that separates us from God would be lifted and that we can enter into this place of freedom and that we can be transformed into His image. 
Because it's in that place that we get the mind of Christ. It's in that place that we get the perspective of Christ. Over our struggles, our challenges, our questions, our doubts, our fears, our worries. And what happens is the weight of everything we've been carrying, it begins to lift. And it's exchanged with a different kind of weight. It's exchanged with the weight of God's glory, which sits on us, but in a totally different way. Rather than oppressing us, it actually fills us and makes us feel secure. And now, uh, filled with the presence of God, he's standing under the weight of God's glory. Elijah hears the word of the Lord to him about what's next. And, and what happens now is Elijah gets recommissioned. You know, it's like, it's time to get back on the horse, matey. That's a paraphrase. Uh, verse 15, the Lord says to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, blah, blah, blah. Anoint Elisha, blah, blah, blah. Do you see that God sends him back the way he came? Go back the way you came to the desert of Damascus? You're like, seriously? Do I have to? It's like God is saying, go back to the places um, where you've been hurt. Go back to the places of sadness and distress. And it's like, uh, no, like, can we just move on? Like, who wants to go back? None of us want to go back. Who wants to go back to the very experiences that caused us all of the pain that that made us flee in the first place? Like, uh, no thanks. Why does God send him back the way that he came? Why? um, Because of redemption. God is going to redeem it all. And all of the places of brokenness and pain, all the places of uncertainty and doubt, all the places of confusion and chaos, God is going to redeem and transform all of it. And the things that had power over us before, in the light of what God has done in and through us, in the the light of how we've been transformed into his image by our encounter with the living God, those things... Those circumstances, those situations, we may go back and they might be exactly the same. But we're no longer the same. And so they no longer hold us. Going back the way we came is actually God's grace. Going back the way we came is actually God's mercy. This is God's way of saying, you are a different man, Elijah. Go back the way that you came that you might know what has happened here. And as you go back, you'll see that you aren't someone who dodged the whole thing, who avoided the whole thing, who stuck his head in the sand and ran for your life. You'll see that you're somebody who had the strength to face all of your difficulty, all of your challenge, and face it all head on. Not on your own, but in and through and with the presence of your heavenly Father who loves you, uh, in and through the presence of Jesus Christ, his precious Son who gave his life for you, Elijah, in and through the presence of the Holy Spirit who is your comforter and counsellor, so that you recognise that you're no longer a slave to your circumstances. You're no longer a slave to your situations. We're no longer slaves to our fears and our worries. We are, in fact, God's child. And as his child, as it says in Romans, he, God, has made us an heir. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We don't need to be afraid. 
So Elijah's being called out of darkness. He's literally being sent back the way he came. He's redeemed and transformed. And he's being sent back to bring redemption and transformation to the broken places that he's been through. Not only for himself, but for others. You know? So he's sent to anoint two kings. And in anointing these two kings, they in turn will reign over and rule over kingdoms that will bring even more of the transformation and the redemption of the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. He's sent to anoint Elisha to be a prophet in his place. It's like God saying, do you know what? Let him take over. You give it all away. You, you've, you're ready to pass on the baton. You know, God's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You have fulfilled, you've discharged the, the, the mandate of your calling, Paul writes. Now you're, you're, you're freed up. You're, you're so free, you can just give it all away. You just don't need to hold on to any of it longer. You just give it all away. And that's what he does. He says to Elijah, go back the way you came and bless it. And see God's kingdom come. See his will be done. I need to stop. So we've got this whole journey thing here going on with Elijah. He rests in the presence of God. He, he, he waits as he walks. He, he gets in touch with all of his feelings. He's brave enough to name all of the stuff that he's feeling. Rather than just squashing it all down, he's happy to just call it all out. Speak it all out. And then he watches for the Lord to come. He sees the power and the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. And he listens to what God says to him. And then he goes. He goes back. That's it. Simple. Why do you stand?